Well, uh, how many of you have read the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? Wow. Okay. There was about an equal number of hands in the first service, and there was half of them. So I was just, I thought that maybe this would be a more uh, reading type of people, but I guess not. Um, Well, in Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, uh, we're introduced to this character named Victor Frankenstein. And he, Victor Frankenstein is actually not the monster. Um, Victor is the doctor, um, and he attends university, and he uh, studies natural philosophy and chemistry. And, and he becomes fascinated with the subject of humanity, and, and specifically, he becomes fascinated with the subject of the origins of humanity. And, and we come to find out all throughout this book that Victor is a very prideful and very arrogant man uh, who in chapter 4 makes a very bold claim. He claims to have uh, discovered the cause of life and uh, also that he is able to create life out of lifeless matter. Um, And that's a pretty uh, bold claim. Um, But he uh, begins to set out on this uh, course to to create life from this collection of random objects that he places on this table. Um, And he really questions whether or not he actually should do this. He questions whether or not he should go through with it. But the allures and the temptations of becoming like a god to this new creature is too much for him to deny, and he he goes through with it. Uh, He states, uh, a new creation would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me, no father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. So we see that Victor is a narcissist of the highest order, and, and this uh, desire for him to create is purely out of uh, his desire for power and his power-hungry attitude of wanting to uh, have rule over something. And so we see in the creation scene, uh, the yellow eyes of the monster open up, and does anybody know what happens next? What does the doctor do? He runs away. Yeah, thank you, Lacey. He was in the first service. Uh, he, he, he runs away immediately. He, he hates the thing that he has just created. He proclaims it as a catastrophe, and he says that he was unable to endure the aspect of the being that he had created so that he rushed out of the room. Well, in Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, we see a, cre- a creator uh, who is selfishly, pridefully, narcissistically motivated to create for the sole purpose of being in charge of something, for the sole purpose of, of, of having rule and, and uh, dominion over a creature, not uh, specifically to, to provide love and, and to uh, provide care for this creature. We see a creator for whom power comes before love. We see a creator for, uh, who flees at the first sign of his creature. And, and this is a, whether it's a, uh, because of this book, Frankenstein, or whether it's just because of uh, the, the culture today, this is a very common understanding of God today. That, that God is just this uh, selfish, power-hungry dictator who, who doesn't want me to be happy. He just wants to, uh, me to follow what he says, and uh, he, he just wants to rule something. He just wants to have power over something. Uh, and, and many believe that if there's a God out there somewhere that he doesn't really care about them, and he doesn't really have any personal connection with their life, and he doesn't want to be intimately involved with them. Uh, and, and, and in fact, this is actually how Aristotle understood God. Aristotle understood God as an unmoved mover. 
who, who didn't have any connection to his uh, creation, but he just sat, kind of sat back and moved pieces like on a chessboard uh, as he pleased. Uh, and so maybe just because of how common of a thought this is today, at least for me, uh, I can really begin to kind of fall into those doubts and those questions, and I can really start to question whether or not God truly loves and whether or not God truly cares about me. Uh, and I can fall into this thinking of this Frankenstein-type God that he's just the selfish dictator who uh, is in no way connected to us. Well, well thankfully, uh, what the Bible reveals to us is that that's not at all who God is. Uh, but the reason I think that for me those doubts can come into my head is that I noticed while I was thinking these things uh, that I had really drifted away, whether it was willful, willfully or not, I drifted away from uh, the most central teaching of the Christian faith and the most central part of who God is. Uh, and, and so if you can relate to me, maybe this uh, is, is uh, what you're thinking as well. Uh, but the most fundamental aspect of who God is and the most central teaching in the Christian faith is that God is triune, that God is three and that God is one and that God is Father, Spirit, Son. And, and so to demonstrate just uh, how I think that I've gotten away from, or I had gotten away from this, uh, I just want to speak about the word itself. Uh, when we hear God is love, what kind of reaction does it invoke in you? Uh, probably a good, a good uh, inviting title. It's probably a warm and, and lively title of God that, that causes us to maybe look at our lives and, and see whether or not we're representing the God who is love and and, and it's this really warm and inviting title of God. And when we hear things like God is kind and God is uh, peaceful, it, it does all the same thing. Uh, but when we hear that God is triune, at least for me, uh, it seems kind of cold and it seems kind of distant and, and it seems kind of maybe like something that's only for like super Christians or like really, really religious people. Um, and it doesn't really seem practical for our day-to-day life. Uh, and so the first year at Moody, uh, down in Chicago, I was attending, or I was helping out with this youth group, and after one of the messages one day, a student came up and asked me, what does the Trinity have to do with the gospel? And I was not expecting that question at all. It's a really, that's like a crazy in-depth question for uh, a high schooler to ask, uh, what does the Trinity have to do with the gospel? And, and I gave like a terrible response, because in my understanding of the gospel, the Trinity didn't have anything to do with it. And so I gave this maybe Christian-sounding answer that used, like, grace or love or one of those, like, Christianese words um, and, and hoped that that would be enough. But it, I don't think it did justice to the question at all. And so this morning, what I'd like to speak about is just simply to answer that question. What does the Trinity have to do with the gospel? Uh, and I want to do that as it's a sermon on the Trinity. I made this joke in first service, and I got a laugh, so I'm going to do it again. As it's a sermon on the Trinity, I have three main points and three applications. Uh, and so that was not planned at all. Uh, so we're going to look at three ways in John 17 and bring three things out of this passage. And we're going to see that God being triune is how he creates, it's how he reveals himself to us, and it's how he saves us. Uh, so let's get into John 17, which, which is this amazing chapter in the Bible. Like uh, my mom just talked about, it's this kind of, we get this fly-on-the-wall perspective of Jesus praying to the Father, and we get this like awesome perspective of two members of the Trinity talking to each other. And this is like crazy, and it might be my favorite passage in the whole Bible, uh, and, and for that reason, just because of its uniqueness and, and all of that. And so we're going to spend most of our time in verses 23 through 26, and we're going to start off in John 17, 24. Jesus says, 
Again, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that last part, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world, is what we're going to talk about for a little bit. And, and this statement is of great news to any Christian in this room. This statement is of great news to anybody who hears it, because what it means is that before God spoke the world into existence, before the creation of the world took place, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were eternally, uh, for all of eternity past, they were loving one another. They were eternally dwelling and, and, and uh, having communion and having perfect fellowship with one another. And that took place before God spoke the world into existence. And so for, for uh, us, we worship a God who, for whom love came before power as opposed to uh, God like Frankenstein for whom power came before love or, or love came before creation. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, love took place before God's power was uh, definitively expressed in the creation of the world. And so, uh, for example, um, the reason I think that this is so cool is because really all other religions and all other gods seem to work the exact opposite. Uh, All single-person, non-triune gods work really in opposite ways. The order is flipped. Uh, non-triune single-person gods, they require a creation in order to be loving. Does that make sense? They require a creation in order to be loving. So take Allah, for example. Allah is the Islam god, and he's said to have 99 names, uh, each of which describe how Allah has been for all of eternity and how he will be for all of eternity. One of these titles is The Loving which uh, just refers to uh, Allah being loving towards his, uh, towards his people. And so this, I hope you see, is fundamentally and logically flawed because before Allah creates, there's nothing else in existence, right? There's nothing else to love. Uh, And so how could Allah or another single-person, non-triune God be eternally loving if they don't have a creation to love? In this case, Allah is dependent on his creation to be Allah And therefore, the creation of the world is not simply about giving love to another, but it's primarily about, uh, like this Frankenstein concept, having power over something, having rule over something, being uh, this uh, dictator-type God. And so single-person, non-triune gods uh, are, are dependent upon their creation in order to be gods, and that is no God at all. Uh, and so this makes Christ's words in John seventeen twenty four that I just read so much more important and so much more stunning because it really is the opposite of every other religion and how uh, these other gods work. Uh, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit eternally dwelling together, eternally having communion, eternally having fellowship with one another, eternally loving one another. Uh, before the creation of the world, tells us that the creation of the world isn't about power or uh, desire to rule a creature, but it's about extending that very same love that they've always had with one another for another. And so uh, if we look at verse 23, we'll see how this connects to the gospel, because that's just creation, that, and we'll see how it connects to the gospel in verse 23. Uh, Jesus says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. 
And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, again, eternally dwelling together, eternally loving one another, eternally having fellowship with one another for all of eternity past and for all of eternity future, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that very same love that they've always had and always will have is now extended and granted and and given to us. And that's an amazing truth of the gospel, that, that the Father's love for the Son becomes the Father's love for you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so that's the first way that the Trinity has to do with the gospel is in creation. The second way that the gospel or the Trinity is fundamental to the gospel is in the concept of revelation, uh, revelation, God revealing himself to his people. And so Jesus, in 25 and the first portion of 26, is going to say, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And so Jesus is going to say, when he says here, he's going to repeat a lot of the things that he said all throughout his earthly ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, that basically nobody can know the Father except the Son. Nobody can come to the Father unless they come through the Son. And this is really one of the reasons why the Roman officials and the the Pharisees and all these other people wanted Jesus killed because he was saying crazy things like this. And he was challenging their their worldview. And so just uh, to show you how often Jesus says this, I have a few uh, different times he said something like this. In John 6.46, Jesus says, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. In John 7, 28 and 29, Jesus says, You do not know him, but I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. In John 8, 19, Jesus says, If you knew me, you would know my Father as well. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, No one comes to the Father except through me. And so over and over and over again, Jesus, what he's going to say is that nobody naturally in their own mind or in their own hearts knows God apart from Christ. Nobody uh, has uh, a proper concept of God or a proper understanding of who God is in their own minds. Nobody's born with it, but it must be uh, revealed to them in the person of Jesus Christ. And, And really this contradicts a lot of modern thought today, especially concerning truth and and knowledge. Uh, The the very common notion today is uh, concerning truth is that truth is relative and that uh, what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. And if they're complete opposites, that's okay because they're both true and nobody has to be hurt. Um, We're both true. Uh, But what Jesus says in the Christian faith is that that is completely the opposite way of everything that the Bible teaches. And and the Bible reveals to us, especially in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the only way to know God. That the only way to have a proper understanding, the only way to know God truly is to first come through Jesus, not to start with ourselves, not to start with what we wish God was like, not to start with what uh, we, we want him to be like, not to start with ourselves, but to start with Christ. And so this uh, really is one of the reasons that Jesus is going to be killed in the very next chapter, uh, or arrested in the next chapter and then killed in in John uh, 19, uh, because he says things like this. He says offensive things like this, that nobody can know God apart from Christ. Nobody can receive salvation, and nobody can know anything about God that's true apart from Christ. 
And this concept was really hard for me to understand because in my pride and in my arrogance, I really wish God was like me because then I, I could, we could be pals or whatever and, and I could uh, know God perfectly because he's exactly like me. And, and maybe you're like me where you wish God was like you. Um, but, and so this concept was really hard for me to understand. And, and so what was really helpful for me to understand uh, Jesus revealing the Father was this exercise uh, that uh, my senior professor did for me at Moody, he, uh, well, for the whole class. We walked into the room, and he showed this painting, uh, and, and he asked us to tell us about the artist who painted this painting. And apparently, uh, I picked a really famous painting because, like, six people in first service knew who this was instantly. You probably do, too. Uh, but what I want you to do is tell me about the artist, tell me uh, qualities about him, tell me what he's like by looking at this picture. What's he like? What are, what are his qualities? And we did this in the winter retreat, so if nobody answers impact students, I'm counting on you. Uh, he's not colorblind. The lights are on. He likes light. What else? Serenity. What do you say? Nature. There's a church in the background, yeah. Detailed. Yes. Very good. What else? Does it tell us anything real or, or uh, sub- substantial or true or, or deep or, or real about the artist? No, we can merely know maybe facts about him, like his name is Thomas something, uh, somebody... Allison, what is it? Thomas Kincaid. Uh, apparently, we have two of these in my house. Uh, I didn't know. Uh, uh, but uh, what we see is that we can only know facts about him, or we can only make maybe vague guesses at what he might be like, but we don't know anything true or substantial about him unless the artist reveals himself to us. And that's exactly what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul writes in Colossians that uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Because we we can't know God unless we come to Christ first. And without Christ, we'd simply be like people looking at this painting, hoping to possibly get to God. Uh, And so that's the second way that the Trinity is deeply important to the gospel. The third way uh, is in uh, salvation. It's in how God saves uh, his people. And so in verse, what we just talked about is that Jesus has made his, the Father's name known in verse 26, but then Jesus goes on to say, and I will continue to make it known. Uh, and there's really two possible interpretations of what this, this might mean, uh, and I don't think either of them are wrong. They're, neither of them are wrong. They're both um, biblical truths, but the question is, which one is Jesus referring to here? And so the first interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is uh, referencing after he's crucified, after he's resurrected, after he's ascended and returns to the Father, that he will continue to be at work among his people and he will continue to be at work in the world, Uh, which again is true. The second interpretation, uh, and and what I believe uh, Jesus to be referring to here, is that this is referencing the cross, that this is referencing uh, the crucifixion where, where the love of God will be most definitively displayed to, to humanity. Uh, and Jesus, so Jesus will continue to make the Father's name known through his sacrificial death on the cross. Uh, and I believe that for a few reasons. 
The first is just that uh, the context of the passage being right before this whole crucifixion process takes place leads me to believe that. Um, the second reason is that if you look at John 17, 1, uh, Jesus starts off this prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come, referencing the cross. Uh, and really the whole prayer is kind of in anticipation of this event that's about to take place. And it's Jesus looking back on his earthly ministry and looking forward to what's about to happen. Uh, and, and thirdly, uh, and most, probably most substantial, is the, the verb that Jesus uses here in Greek, the, the tense and the mood of it. Uh, is a future indicative uh, verb, which I don't know Greek. Devin had to explain this to me, uh, so Devin can take credit for this third point. Uh, But uh, a future indicative verb uh, usually refers to a singular future event, not just a broad future. Uh, And so Jesus actually uses a future indicative verb for the first time in 17, but if you go back to 16, uh, Jesus uses a variety of these all to reference uh, the cross. So in John sixteen seven, he says, I will be going away, but I will send somebody when I leave. Uh, in John sixteen nineteen through 20, he tells his disciples that they will soon not see Jesus because he will die, and, and the disciples will weep, but their weeping will turn to joy because of his resurrection when they see him again. And in John sixteen twenty five, Jesus says, that once he has resurrected, they will no they no longer will have this blinded perspective, this kind of half uh, covered perspective, but they will see the risen Christ in all of his glory. Uh, and so, just for those reasons, uh, I really uh, believe that Jesus here is referencing the cross when he says, "I will continue to make your name known," or "I will continue to make it known." And so going off that, uh, through Christ living a perfect life and and taking our sin on himself and our brokenness and our shame and our despair and and putting it to death on the cross and and resurrecting three days later, anybody who believes in him is able to partake in the love that the Father has for the Son. And if that sounds strange or if that sounds uh, uh, complicated or if you don't really know what that means, all that means is it's just a synonym for salvation. It's just a synonym for God saving his people uh, that, that we would, uh, that he would take on our brokenness and our sin and our shame and our despair and, and uh, put it to death on the cross so that we might be able to receive his holiness and his love and, and his uh, righteousness and his perfection. And so we would be presented to the Father as holy and blameless. And, and so to receive the love that the Father has for the Son is, is what it means to be saved. That's, a, that's another way to just say that uh, we have received salvation. And, and so the gospel uh, has nothing to do with our own works. It has nothing to do with uh, how good of people we are. It has nothing to do with how moral of people are or, or this concept of getting to God somehow, crossing that, that huge chasm. But it has everything to do with Jesus being made wretched and, and cursed and, and hung and broken and, and killed on a tree so that we might be able to be presented holy and righteous before the Father. And that we would be able to receive the love that the Father has always had for the Son. And, and so the Trinity, uh, God being triune, is the only way in which we are able to be saved. Uh, without, apart from Christ, there's no way that we can be reconciled to the Father. And so those are the, the three ways that the Trinity is fundamental or, or vital to the gospel is in creation, revelation, and salvation. 
And, and so for me, when I hear a message, it can be really easy for me to just uh, leave uh, all the things that the, the speaker said in my head, and it can be really easy to, to just let it stay in this room and not really affect my heart. So it's really hard for me to take this home with me and understand how exactly I can apply this to my life. Uh, and so I'd like to just give three applications, uh, three ways that I think that we can apply this passage to our, our, our hearts and our minds. And maybe as we go out into this new year tomorrow that we would be able to take some of these things with us and possibly make these things our, our resolutions or our goals or whatever you want to say. Uh, and so uh, I just have three applications for this passage. The first is that uh, being recipients of the Father's love for the Son, which we just talked about, should encourage us to participate in the Son's obedience to the Father. And this concept of love and obedience are always tied together in, in the Bible, but, uh, but it's a really hard concept for people to understand because uh, a lot of people think that, oh, like love and obedience are opposites. Uh, obedience is just obeying the rules, and love is like my actual feelings towards you. But our feelings uh, and God's feelings for us should invoke in us a reaction to obey and, and, and please the Father. And so this really comes from Jesus' words when he says, not my will, but yours, and referencing the Father when he puts aside his own will, he places aside his own wants and his desires to come down from that cross because of the physical torment he was going through, but he withstands it and he does it for the sake of doing the Father's will. And so what this means in your own life might be dif- different from what it looks like in somebody else's life, but I know that it means a laying aside of your will for the Father's will. And so whether that means cutting out a specific sin that you've been struggling with, whether it means uh, being uh, a more loving or caring person for your parents or a loving and caring person towards your spouse or, or your kids or whatever it means, uh, our duty as Christians at, in light of the Father's love for the Son is to participate in obedience back to the Father. The second way that I think that we can apply this passage is uh, who we believe God to be must be rooted solely in Jesus Christ. And and we talked about this a little bit already, uh, this concept of truth and this concept of knowing God is really uh, relative. And and, uh, you can believe one thing about God and I can believe one thing about God and they're both true and that's okay. Uh, But what Jesus says uh, over and over and over and over again uh, in the Gospels is that only uh, we can only know God through Jesus. And so uh, I can think of many times in my own life where uh, I really thought that something was in, the, like, thought something sounded Christian or thought something was in the Bible, and, and so I would, like, share on Facebook or whatever, or, or I would uh, re, I don't know, retweet, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, but uh, I would uh, do these different things to, uh, that maybe I thought sounded Christian or was how God acted, and then I would come to the Bible, and I would, I would see that the complete opposite was true or whatever it was. Uh, in, in my pride and in my arrogance, I really wanted God to be a certain way, and uh, I would come to the Bible and I would just be like struck in the face with how wrong I was. And so who we believe God to be and what we believe about God must not be rooted in ourselves or in our own minds or in our, our, our own hearts or in our own desires, but it must only come from Jesus Christ. And finally, the third way that I believe that we can apply this passage to our lives uh, is in uh, the oneness uh, that Jesus calls us to. Uh, in the first few verses of John seventeen twenty through 26, which we didn't really talk about 
Jesus really focuses on calling the, the fellow believers and the people that he's praying for to be united in the same way that the tr- members of the Trinity are united. And I always thought that like comparisons or, or commands as a result of, of God doing them was like really intimidating and really challenging because how am I supposed to live up to that? Uh, but, but Jesus commands us to. He commands us to be one and united with our fellow believers in the same way that, that God the Father is united to God the Son and, and Son to the Spirit and Spirit to Father and, and all those different combinations. And so, again, what this means in your life might differ from what it looks like in somebody else's life, whether this means uh, you're not in a small group and you, you should join a small group, whether it means that you are in a small group but you're not really making it a priority in your life, whether it means uh, going to church uh, when it's difficult for you or when it's uh, uh, inconvenient for you or it comes at a bad time, uh, whether it means uh, going out of your way simply just to serve one another, whether it means uh, just listening to somebody in their time of need, whether it means any of those things, uh, it, it for sure means a laying aside of our own will for the sake of another. And so those are three ways that I, I hope that you take with you and you maybe dwell on one of each of those or, or just one uh, and, and you make it maybe your goal or your resolution for this next uh, next year that you would uh, continue to seek to live in ways that uh, Christ has commanded and that you would uh, really begin to understand God as triune as being essential to the gospel. So let's pray. God, uh, I just thank you so much for who you are, um, the, the person uh, that, that you, uh, who you are, and uh, the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, the ways that you have created and the ways that you have saved us. Uh, God, we uh, ask that in the, as this new year begins and as this new week and as each new day begins, that we would continually be reminded of you and we would continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and we would continue to live in ways that uh, uh, seeks to be in accordance with your will. Uh, God, we uh, ask that Uh, your spirit would be with us as we go out into the world and and that it would uh, be a comfort and and, uh, encouragement and and something to us that produces boldness to share the gospel. And God, we thank you for uh, sending your son to die on the cross and and, and revealing uh, who you are to to us, people who without you would have no hope. God, we love you so much and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.